the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back to uh, part two of this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner program. Joining me for today's edition are roundtable regulars, including on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican, Henry Hatter. Henry, welcome back to you. Thank you. And a special uh, armchair politics welcome to our frequent uh, participant, the East Village Magazine consulting editor, Jan Worth Nelson. Jan, welcome back. Thanks for being here this week. Great to be here as always. Um, I said we were going to move on to Lansing, and, and this this one, uh, this was kind of an interesting thing, ca- caught my attention in the uh, Detroit Free Press, I believe. If the state believes the former leader of Michigan is criminally liable for the Flint water crisis, then why isn't the current head of the state similarly responsible for any of the COVID-19 deaths at nursing homes? The question is at the forefront of the Michigan political and legal universe right now, and it's on Attorney General Dana Nessel to answer it. It's one posed chiefly by Republicans, including State Senator Jim Runstead from uh, Republican from uh, White Lake, and a handful of other senators who recently asked Nessel to investigate Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Nessel's office offers a simple answer for why the case against former Governor Rick Snyder is different than the allegations against Whitmer. Quote, in the case of Flint, the prosecution team established probable cause in order to obtain and review millions of documents before indictments were issued based on existing Michigan laws. Uh, That quote was from uh, Kelly Rossman McKinney, a Nestle spokeswoman. 
In the case of Senator Runestead's request, simply suggesting or suspecting there was criminal wrongdoing isn't sufficient. Criminal investigations are initiated when there is cause to believe that crimes were committed. We would and we will, if appropriate, initiate a criminal investigation when there is cause to believe crimes were committed. Michigan Republicans and other critics say the decision is clearly political and the fact that thousands of people died in nursing homes warrants an inquiry of some kind. Recently, GOP senators approved a bill that would offer $250,000 to any county prosecutor who promises to conduct a reasonable investigation of Whitmer and state nursing home policies. Um, setting the, the $250,000 bribe by the legislature, <laughs> um, what if not suspicion generates a search for probable cause? What if not suspicion hmm. generates I mean, how do, how do you determine that there's probable cause if you don't look into it to begin with? Yes. Can I just say this? Now, you have Please. to go back to New York and look at what happened in your New York. Yeah, there's a sharp contrast with New York. And as, 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 uh, as it goes, Governor Cuomo is going to walk the plank. He will lose his job, his reputation, and everything because of those people who were killed, who were allegedly killed, um, nursing homes when they introduced uh, the COVID test. And now in this state, we have to go through and investigate whether similar incident occurred. There's nothing wrong with that. If, if Cuomo has to walk the plank for that, then certainly equals have to uh, walk the plank for that. Well, I think part of the issue was Cuomo was fudging the data. As far as I know, there's no yeah, indication that was happening here in Michigan. No, that, that was a big that. distinction between the two. Yeah. Uh, you're preaching to the choir there, Paul, because that's one of Henry's <laughs> Henry's pet peeves is uh, altering documents. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. But, but there's nothing wrong with just going ahead through the process. Now, in most places, they're going to be, I think the outcome would be favorable to the state, to uh, the governor and her crew. Yeah, the, the stuff I've seen here on, on the Michigan case shows that, you know, clearly there were some, there were a lot of deaths, but there were a lot of deaths nationwide, and Michigan was really not much worse than any other state. And as I say, the big distinction was that the data wasn't fudged, nobody was making up numbers, they, they, they were fairly accurate. And, uh, yeah, but my, as tragic a situation was, it's the same as most other states. My question is about the defense of, of the governor by uh, the attorney general's office saying, well, there's no probable cause, and there was probable cause in the Rick Snyder case. How did how did they arrive yeah. at probable cause? Mm. You, yeah, you, know, yeah. You, you have to start looking into something yes. Yes. to determine whether there's probable cause. Now, maybe you can't, you know, search the governor's offices or, you know, call, haul her in for questioning without probable cause, but you got to look into it. Hmm. And it would protect her legacy as well. Because otherwise she would have a questionable uh, service to the, to the state of Michigan. Yeah, if, her, if probable cause is not found during a, a uh, you know, preliminary uh, examination 
um, then no charges are filed, no harm, no foul. Yeah. It, it, it just seems that, uh, you know, not doing an investigation because there's no proof yet isn't, it, it, that just seems like kind of a weak defense to me. Uh, yeah, I think pro- I think there's a legal definition for probable cause for things like search warrants, where, for example, the police have got to have some reason to believe, some concrete reason to believe there are drugs in the car. Let's say they saw it, they smelled it, they learned from a, from a reliable informant. It can't just be a hunch or a guess or, you know, they hope they got lucky kind of stuff. Uh, there are some very concrete legal legal definitions for what probable cause is. And as I say, it's got to be more than just a hunch or a, uh, the hope that you find something. Um, I would hope that the I would hope that the governor will let this proceed because it goes a long ways to help us reestablish trust in government, no matter who it is, whether it's Democrats or Republicans or local, state or federal. But somehow we have to begin the process, and this could be for Michiganders a uh, a way of helping us to reestablish that trust. We could use more of that. This yeah, really sounds yeah. like a chicken and an egg issue to me. Well, like, uh, but it kind of is, Jan. That's that's what I'm getting at. You know, I, how how did the you know um, how did the investigation that led to probable cause for Rick Snyder begin? And well, you know if. If it wasn't with without some some complaints and some suspicions, you know how how, how do you determine there was probable cause there? Were there in de- were there emails, for instance, that suggested something? Or I mean, in all of their in all of their um, in all of their <laughs> investigations into other people, uh, there seemed to be some hints toward him or something but I, I get I think I get what you're talking about this it, is it, this is purely about process yes. you know it's not about whether you think there was any wrongdoing done um, whether is, yeah. or not it's political of course it's political but uh, the defense that's being used you know from a process standpoint seems kind of weak to me it, it it just seems like you know well there isn't any proof that you know, our guy did anything wrong, so we're not going to investigate it. To find out whether he did. Well, yeah, to find and, out and, whether there's any proof. Yeah. And, as you know, I've been a supporter of the governor, Rick Snyder, throughout this whole process, because I say that it wasn't his. He was not legally responsible for what they did in Flint at the time that they did. And besides, he would have to research the process to find out uh at what point he should become uh, available. But I think there was an email that was sent to the governor's office by an individual from Flint. I think it may have been uh, the Department of Public Work, maybe someone yeah, else, that said that we had called the governor's office on a certain day, and that was ignored. That, 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 this is what I recall about it. Uh, but uh, yet, the people in Flint who had jurisdiction and authority to act did not act. Uh, the mayor became politically involved in it because he should have let his um, uh, his authorities who work for the water plant to answer all of the questions because that's where they were. 
not making any assumptions. So that kind of confused things. And so the mayor wrote to the governor and said, help us, if you guys remember that. Mm. And he did the right thing. But there was a point at which time Flint could no longer protect itself. Its leadership had failed them. Its uh, institutions, like the public works, had failed the people. Now, the governor is automatically obliged to interact at that time. And then uh, it gets evasive from there. I don't remember a lot of detail. But I do remember that I have always supported the fact that the governor was not the first line of responsibility for what happened here in Flint, Michigan. And not only that, but the APA had written letters and said that all of our infrastructure throughout the nation was leaking and posed a serious threat to public health and safety. That was the first done in 1996, and then again reported in 1999, and then in, 19, in 2012. And, of course, the event happened here two years later, 2014. Well, wasn't there that email, Henry, that where that, I'm thinking of, of all the various emails that came out, wasn't there an email that kind of blew off Flint? Uh, I've forgotten the exact wording of it, but something to the effect that, oh, well, don't worry, it's only Flint. Uh, was yeah, that, wasn't, <laughs> that yeah. wasn't the governor. Uh, that yeah, was yeah. probably one of his... Uh, his uh, I what, what, was, what was the comment? It was something like... It was something <laughs> it's about, only Flint. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, and that was not the exact quote. That was it, um, it, it kind of blew off Flint. The governor's uh, chief of staff at the time sent him an email. This is Rick Snyder um, that said, in essence, why would we want to invest a lot of time and money in a place like Flint? Yeah, yeah. And the it. argument was that because it was a black city and it was taken as being a racial a racially motivated comment. And I argued at the time, and you probably remember this, Paul, that I thought it was more about the fact that Flint, it wasn't that Flint was full of black people, it was Flint was Democrats. full of Democrats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, they didn't that. support, Genesee County was one of the few counties in the state that didn't go for Rick Snyder, and I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was more political than racial. Um, it yeah, was so still, it was still kind of a clumsy thing to get caught <laughs> in your email. True, true. But also, the administration was black at that time, and so were all of the people who ran, not all of them, but who were at the top of the major institution in question. That was the you're talking about uh, in the, the city of Flint. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but, but it's true that we've got to make sure that all of our people are prepared to be in positions of responsibility and be capable of carrying out those orders no matter who gets hurt. That's your responsibility. That's what you pledged to the people when you accepted that job. And that was the perfect place to stop, Henry, so I don't have to cut you off because we have to go to break <laughs> here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I always feel so bad because Henry gets right in the middle of making a good point, and it's time to go to break. But it is, in fact, time to go to break. If you're uh, listening to us on 92.1 FM, uh, WFOV in Flint, 
We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well, and then Armchair Politics will continue. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. Uh, Armchair Politics continues now on the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Jan Worth Nelson. Um, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson declined an invitation to testify at a Senate Oversight Committee hearing Monday, voicing concerns that the hearing would provide a platform for misinformation about the November 2020 election and advance election bills introduced by Senate Republicans that Benson opposes. Should Secretary of State Benson be able to decline giving testimony to a Senate committee simply because she doesn't like or agree with what the hearing is about? Hmm. And can they subpoena her? Well, <clears throat> I think that the, <clears throat> she suggests uh, that uh, her decision is political. Because if you have nothing to hide, you don't have to be concerned about that. Think about that. If you have nothing to hide, you have right. nothing to be concerned. So yeah, I think probably. that she gets she gets a D on this answer. But uh, <clears throat> but then it's not for me to be the decision maker. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it may have maybe the intent may be to have a political show, but I think she could she could have handled herself. Uh, yes, under those conditions and probably could have come out ahead. So I think it might have been wiser for her to respond in some way, uh, maybe to limit the time and all that, so she's not there for six or eight hours. But uh, I think in some way a response would have been more appropriate. Well, and and, and she sort of made reference to something I uh, I skipped over, um, a piece I was, I was going to introduce uh, that had uh, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist speaking out um, Thursday against some of those election-related bills that uh, are making their way through the Michigan legislature and other legislatures around the country. Um, but I'll just go right straight to the question. Are both sides of the aisle trying to manipulate voting rules to their own political advantage without regard for the fundamental rights of voters? You know, I, and here's what I hope. This is not what it, it may be. But here's what I hope. I hope that they're trying to find a dialogue to have a mutual discussion on what the outcome for voting strategies should be. Uh, but to start out with an accusation is the wrong way to do it. You will get no place. You will get more of what you're feeding. And it's been yeah, and, and I think, many, many times over. I think Tom's probably right. Probably both sides you know, know where their advantage lies in terms of using the rules. <laughs> but I think in, in a larger sense, yeah, there are things that could be done after the pandemic. We've learned very quickly how to put together a, a very different kind of a voting system, and it, frankly, it worked pretty darn well. But there are glitches. There have been some. There were some problems here and there, and those could be ironed out. But I think when push comes to shove, the the, the final goal ought to be to have as many people who are well informed voting and be able to turn out. And I think that that could be done in a in a bipartisan, nonpartisan way. But clearly both sides, I mean, clearly if, if reducing the number of voters helped Democrats and increasing the number helped Republicans, you'd probably see different sides on the issue. 
But I think clearly that uh, we've learned an awful lot in this past year where increasing the number of voters can make an awful lot of sense if it's done right. And I think it, it was, I say, done fairly right for, um, when we had to shuffle around quickly. And I think, like I say, a few glitches would, were there that could be ironed out and <clears throat> tweaks to make the system more efficient. But all in all, uh, the, the, the ideal ought to be to have an open democracy. Right. I was interested in um, Keisha Lance Bottoms' administrative order, I think they're calling it, of what she's going to try to do to mitigate the effects of the Georgia uh, new law uh, for the city of Atlanta. Did you guys hear hear about that this I, morning? I, 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 I heard it. She, basically, she's saying, I don't have it in front of me, but she's saying that she's issued this administrative order kind of to make sure that a whole bunch of steps are put into place for the city of Atlanta so that everybody is well-educated and informed about the effect of the new laws and that uh, educating people about how to vote under the new law, um, I think the word that was, that was used in it was to mitigate the limitations as much as possible. So in a sense, um, she's going with what Paul was just saying, which is let's, we've learned a lot. <laughs> let's uh, see what we can do about educating people about how to, uh, how to vote. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a shame that she would have to do that. It, it, she felt that she'd have to do that, and it's too late to change the law now, apparently. Uh, well, it, but that, that's an interesting <laughs> approach, at least. I thought it was quite fascinating. But she's sort of calling. She's sort of calling the bluff of the of the yeah, state. Yeah, no. I mean, there's no doubt that the intent behind what's going on in Georgia and many other states it clearly favors is an attempt to repress the vote and to help Republicans. And I understand the logic behind all of that. But uh, what's really interesting is that when they've tried that before, very often it has an exactly opposite impact. Is that right. they actually increase turnout? People may react. Say, "You're going to tell me I can't vote? Well, I'm going to go out there and I'll show you how I can vote." And I, it did happen before in 2016 when there were some selective attempts to do that. The voting turnout actually increased a little bit, so it may have an exactly opposite effect. Right. You know, the problem that I don't get about this, and thank you for the, letting us uh, listen to uh, the statement by the the representative from, from Georgia, but. Uh, you know, I I have difficulty understanding what voter suppression is because I I've never been challenged by anyone. I've always been able to go into the poll, show my license, and show other ID that they ask for without resistance. And I've always had a great experience when I go vote. Otherwise, I wouldn't. But if I go out and someone told me, if I told my kids that they're going to suppress you and you'd be prepared for this, you're going to go into the voting polls negative, and you're going to think that everybody's against you. But I don't believe that. I, I, I believe that I, there was a time that that did exist, and it existed in the South. And we have evidence to prove that, both from the, uh, from the media at that time and from people who lived there. They will attest to that. That's evidence that showed a trend, that showed that there was, this actually happened. But today, I don't understand that at all. Huh. I want to squeeze in, uh, I, I want to try and get a, a, one more thing um, 
from Michigan, and then we'll uh, move on to a couple of things from Washington. The Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission will hold 16 public hearings throughout the state starting on May 11th. The 13-person commission tasked with redrawing the state's political districts for Congress and the legislature approved a preliminary schedule for the public hearings during a May 30th, a May 30th meeting. That must have been a March 30th meeting. The meetings will begin at 6 p.m. and are tentatively scheduled to end at 9 p.m. Ed uh, Woods III, Director of Communications for the Michigan Department of Management and Budget, said the hearings will continue until every person who signed up to speak is given the chance to do so. How can public comment be collected without the presence of census data and a first draft of district lines? Yeah, no, I, I I saw the same story, and I had the same. It, it, at this point, we can only abstractly say let's have fair districts, but until we have the numbers and and all that, we uh, uh, we're just going to be talking in vague generalities. I think. You know, it's interesting how these several stories that you brought up today have sort of indicated our struggle to figure out what's the right data to help us um, decide what to do. <laughs> It seems like we're, you know, we're really struggling with that in a number of key areas. Like, how do we, how do we decide what to do? How do we, how does the public make meetings? <laughs> See, in you know, if it if it hadn't been for the pandemic and the interruption to the census process and the delay in getting it, you know, getting the numbers back, um, those numbers would be in in plenty of time. To you know, start playing with some, you know, here's an example of how we might go, and and the public could comment on what those districts looked like, but now the data isn't in yet, right. and you know the the commission is asking for an extension, but how do they how do they start having public hearings without a proposal without right. data. Yeah, for them to weigh in. Uh, let's, yeah. let's, be, let's have a fair election or something of that nature. I, I think I think September 30th was the date when the census thing is supposed to be done, although I'm not sure that's even set in concrete. And then the, the, the district's going to, the uh, commission's going to have to scramble to get those districts in place for the 2022 elections, the primaries, and everything else. Um. Well, let's let's move on to Washington. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called for a global minimum corporate tax rate on Monday, a pitch that comes as the Biden administration begins to sell its roughly two trillion dollar infrastructure and jobs proposal that would raise U.S. corporate taxes to fund the massive plan. Is Secretary Yellen trying to block American businesses from dodging Biden administration tax increases by moving assets and resources abroad? I, I think there's something to that. Yeah. I, I think there's a little coordination going on there between the, I, I think so, yeah, the White House and the Treasury Secretary. It was surprising to learn how many significant U.S. corporations had their base in Ireland or Cayman Islands or other similar places. That's true. Or China, or, or Japan, now, this uh, is, everywhere around the globe. This is Canada, a, a, 
interesting so. because the the proposal from uh, the Biden administration is is to raise corporate income tax from 21 to 28 oh. percent, and that's after it was lowered from 35 percent in 2017. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was it was that high still in 2017. Yeah, but you know, it's it's always been commerce that made us who we are today. This is why we look the way we. This is why we're the richest country in the world, the most productive, and uh, have income to feed back into the public, who are less fortunate than those who are in the upper echelons of uh, the money-making public, the money-making people, and that's what make that is the difference between that purview. And the ones that go on in the rest of the world. Well, here's here's the really big question, Henry. Can the Biden administration pass COVID relief and infrastructure funding and pay for it all by recovering tax revenue lost to Republican tax cuts before the 2022 midterms are likely to swing one of the houses, probably the Senate, to a Republican majority? Uh, that would be disastrous. That's the I, race. I, I think that's why that is the race. Get these things done quickly. Yeah. I th- no, I think but see, the clock is ticking. I I think he can get passage. I mean, he's already gotten passage on, on yeah. the COVID relief, and and it looks like he'll get passage for the infrastructure. Package. It does. Yeah, he he may need to do a little bit of tweaking on it to to bring across a few Republicans who lean in that direction. But I think it's a possibility. But and can he get he the so far, can, But can he get the money to offset it before Republicans retake yeah. one of the houses in twenty twenty two? Yeah, that's a concern. And you know what we want to do in trying to solve a short term problem. It turns into impact, long-term advantages for the United States. If we don't want to lose our, our enterprises here, we don't want to reduce commerce in the United States and become a third world country. We, we got the infrastructure, we got the intelligence, we've got everything we need to maintain our dominance in the world that we have now. But we have to believe in it and we have to work together to protect that, not let any more companies leave the shores of the United States and driving them off with corporate income tax, that's outrageous. We need to rethink that. There may be a reason we can do both, but we've got to sit down and talk about it. Right. I, I mean, I think corporations, I'm in favor of corporations paying their share, which sounds like just Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, but um, <laughs> to me, that seems like a really good way to pay for the infrastructure proposals because uh, I think you're right that, you know, corporations benefit from American from infrastructure. If the infrastructure is crumbling, which there's a lot of evidence to support, that ain't going to be good for corporations either and could be another reason why they go out outside the country. So to me, the chicken and the egg there is get the good infrastructure built. That's going to be one way to keep the corporations here, uh, being able to do their work efficiently and, and effectively but also, and this, is, this really sounds naive, I know, but I think corporations could market their support for it uh, to show their, their, uh, their moral support for, for, the, for the country's needs in a way that uh, would be new, somewhat new. I don't know. I, I'm always like thinking it. that it's a good like thing to be able to behave I came across an idea. 
I came across a thing that might be worth floating by Chris in your earlier hour that suggested that a relatively high tax rate on corporations actually encourages more investment and growth because that takes away from that, that reduces your taxable profits on a corporation. So, I, ironically, a fairly high tax rate encourages a corporation to expand and grow and invest money in in new products rather than just stash it away in the in the bank someplace. Again, I, I, I'd be worth floating by by Chris to see whether or not that's an accurate point. But I came across that the other day. That was intriguing. That that is an interesting notion, and and the and the big question is, would that result in uh, more paychecks? Yeah, yeah, they would would invest money in new businesses because that takes takes away from your bottom line and reduces your tax bill, but it does increase does does increase more jobs and more paychecks. Yeah, but but Tom, just another very important. I'm sorry, but Tom, just another very important uh, function. Will it result in more jobs or more computers? More, more robots. Right. Uh, and what you said, Paul, is very good. These are things that we need to sit down and talk about, whether we uh, pay the 28% or the 22% that Janet Yell- someone else has proposed. Uh-huh. But those are things that we can, we can logically sit down and talk with if we got the right people at the table. Leave yeah. the politicians out and go for people who want to save our country from we ourselves itself and outsiders how can you leave the politicians out though because they're the ones that ultimately uh yeah. determine the policy well you're so right I, I don't i don't mean I, when i say politicians are people who are not willing to work together there's a there's a group process that you call well here's some what is it saying that politics is the art of the possible or something like that right, it's like, right? yes uh, so but they know they know how to do it. The politicians know how to do it. Other people sit around the table as Greek gods, but the politicians know how to put things together. But you just got to get the right ones at the table. Yeah, there, there's the thing called the art of politics, and it's not always pretty, but it's, it can get things done. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I do think that Biden is uh, pretty much is a is a realist, uh, and he's fairly savvy on. Um, and pretty determined to try to keep this going, and uh, we'll see if he can come up with a... Do you think he's going to come up with anything bipartisan, Henry? Well, I think if he does his own thinking, he could. But if there are other people, and also, if we can keep Obama and the other people from the table and let him decide for himself, and uh, he will do the best thing for the country. Well, and I, and I think the, the, the coordination of uh, Janet Yellen's uh, uh, call for a global minimum corporate tax, I, I think that shows that uh, there's somebody in the White House that knows how all these moving parts work and how, right. they, and how they can fit together. I, I want to bring up one more thing before we, we go to break. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell warned big businesses they would face, quote, serious consequences after accusing them of employing economic blackmail in attempts to influence voting laws as the backlash over Georgia's election elections law that imposes voting restrictions intensifies. The statements by McConnell are particularly notable not only because he has long championed the involvement of corporate money in politics, uh, (laughs) 
a past position he attempted to square with new remarks yesterday. But because the Republican Party traditionally has been more sympathetic to big business. During a news conference in Louisville yesterday, McConnell reiterated his warning to corporate America to, quote, stay out of politics, unquote, and to not be intimidated by the left, blasting the MLB, uh, the Major League Baseball, and other corporations. Uh, decision to jump into the middle of a highly controversial issue McConnell called stupid. Is uh, money, let me be careful how I phrase this, is money speech and our corporations people only when you agree with what they're saying? <laughs> yes, I'm shocked that he, there's money in politics. Yeah. <laughs> As I recall, uh, used the phrase the leftist mob which i thought was right. a very it was a very um annoying sending yeah place of yeah. words happened on you know on january yeah when well, yeah, yeah, i, I mean, hadn't he heard was, the same quote yeah. he was a big fan of citizens united uh which gave, exactly yeah and so there you have it i mean come on come on mitch uh but he, you know, yeah, he, he invited him in to play, and now he wants to change the rules. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I had I had to chuckle when I heard that that quote from him that, <laughs> that he doesn't want big business involved in politics. Now watch out for the the leftist mob. Yeah. <laughs> is, do you think McConnell is losing his power? Pardon. Uh, that's I don't know. That's yet to be seen. I I think the the larger question is whether or not um, the the love affair between big business and the Republican Party is eroding. It seems that yeah. it might. And, and, and I think you are seeing a shift there. I think we're seeing a major shift in terms of party allegiances. Particularly if the Trump faction holds holds together, we'll see how that plays out. But it does look like we're seeing some major realignments in in both parties. Wouldn't it be ironic if that's one of the painful transitions with the Republican Party because of Trump? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, Trump Trump ends up, you know, as Rick Wilson always says, turning everything to you know what. Uh, everything that he touches dies, or whatever that Rick Wilson line <laughs> yeah. is. But uh, he—I mean, Trump has left Mitch McConnell with a big mess. I think. Uh, but you guys, uh, the thing that you don't see is that you, you see the responses from the upper echelon, which is the leadership. But you don't it, see that basic Republican Party, the silent majority, the people who don't say anything. You don't change those mind people by a single action. You, you got to drop bombs or tear up cities or something like that to get, get their attention. But I don't think uh, that Donald Trump's efforts here to sweep away all the wealth from the party will be effective, if uh -huh. that's his intent, which I doubt. I, I still kind of wonder whether we're going to see a Trump party and a Republican party, and you know, whether who who hangs on to the Republican label remains to be seen. But I can still see a split there between the traditional Republicans and the Trump Republicans uh, in some fashion. Maybe the Republican Party will become the Republican Progressive Party again. 
For, yeah, the old Teddy Roosevelt's version of the Republican Party. <laughs> hey, we've <laughs> yeah. got we've got to take a break there, but uh, it's it's an exciting one for me because when we come back, we're going to get into uh, some of the X Files, which um, are are sometimes hard to tell from the other headlines that we talk about. But uh, we will be back with the uh, final segment of today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program after we let our broadcast partner squeeze in a few words. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world 
Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back to Armchair Politics and the segment we call The X-Files featuring those weird and wacky uh, news stories that are strange but true. Like this one. <laughs> On Sunday night, a government agency freaked out many Twitter users with a now-deleted tweet that only read, and I have to spell this out, semicolon L, semicolon, semicolon, G, M-L-X-Z-S-S-A-W. Many Twitter users went kafefe over the post trying to figure out what the tweet meant and whether it related to national security. Spoiler alert, the reason wasn't very strategic at all, according to journalist Mikhail Thalen, who filed a Freedom of Information request with the government agency. Thalen said it appears the Twitter manager for Strategic Command left his computer unattended, allowing a young child access to the keyboard. (laughs) According to the response Thalen received from Strategic Command, absolutely nothing nefarious occurred, and the Twitter account was not hacked. Is anyone else or besides me worrying now about how often national security is left in the hands of young children by the strategic command? (laughs) Let's hope a a three-year-old does a Star World War III. (laughs) Good grief. And and guys, don't underestimate the intelligence of a (laughs) three-year-old. True. That's one of those things where it, it almost looked like maybe a cat had walked across the keyboard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Working from home or something? Is that I, how it happened? I, I couldn't tell for sure from the article, but that was the impression I had, Jan. Either that or it was, you know, bring your uh, three-year-old to work day. <laughs> um, some Alaska Costco shoppers said they've had their groceries stolen by ravens in the store parking lot. Matt Llewellyn said he was packing his groceries into his car in the parking lot of an Anchorage Costco when ravens swooped in to steal a short rib from his cart. (laughs) 
<laughs> I literally took ten steps away and turned around. Two ravens came down and instantly grabbed one out of the package, ripped it off, and flew off with it, Llewellyn said. Llewellyn said the piece of meat was about four by seven inches, a sizable meal for a sizable bird. They, they know what they're doing. It's not their first time, Llewellyn said. They're very fat, so I think they've got a whole system there. And once he got back home, he noticed that one of the ravens had taken a poke at another rib, but did not rob it. Uh, I cut that meat out and started marinating it, and my wife said, that's gross, we should take it back. <laughs> Costco actually took it back even after we had started marinating them and gave us a full refund. Additional raven thief sightings have emerged on social media. Does this seem like something from an Alfred Hitchcock or... or uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it, it, that would have us yeah, it, uh, fighting off ravens for our food? Edgar Allan Poe really knew the raven was a thief. <laughs> <He knew this. laughs> That's true, Harry. Yeah. Well, here's here's one. This this is my favorite in quite a while. A parade of ancient Egyptian mummies will travel through the streets of Cairo during a televised event during Egyptian uh, celebrities. Uh, or featuring, rather, Egyptian celebrities uh, escorting them to their new home. The Pharaoh's Golden Parade, organized by the Egyptian Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities, will include 22 mummies on their way from the Egyptian Museum in Tahrir to the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization. The event will move 18 kings, four queens, and their belongings three miles to the new museum, which is set to open to the public later this year. A team of 48 people was tapped to prepare the mummies for their trip, including placing each mummy in a nitrogen capsule free from oxygen and protected from the damaging effects of humidity, bacteria, fungi, and insects. The mummies date from about 1539 B.C. to 1075 B.C. and include the pharaoh Ramses II, uh, portrayed as the pharaoh mentioned in the Bible's book of Exodus, and Queen Hathseput, uh, or Hatsheput. I think that's how you say it. The influential female pharaoh known for building monuments and temples and launching trade expeditions. The parade will include vehicles designed to look like ancient chariots, uh, motorcycle riders, horses, and local celebrities. Some details, including new discoveries made while preparing the mummies, are being kept a surprise. Televised coverage will include pre-recorded segments, and people are being encouraged to watch the event on television rather than venturing into the streets. Can you imagine waking up in Cairo from a COVID-related coma and seeing a parade of mummies in the street below your window? But <laughs> you're going back in time travel. Yeah. You know, uh, can you explain to me why we are destroying um, the sites of history? by moving these mummies from one place to another. Oh, this I know is, one thing would be preservation. This, this was um, actually uh, coincides with the opening of, of a, a newer 
larger facility and they had to come up they were going to move these artifacts from one museum to another and oh yeah okay and then okay. just came I up see. with with a a fun way to do it henry sure. you know they thought yes it's been a while well, since these uh since these um people had been in a parade and maybe they should let them have one <laughs> well well I, yeah. I initially thought that they were going to go to the pyramids and dig these out and then parade them but they oh, have no, already no, been moved yeah no, already, they're, they're, i don't already, i don't have a point yeah thank you yeah i i saw some news clips of that i mean i saw some videos of, of the parts of that parade yeah yeah, I just think that would be the, just the strangest thing. Of course, I remember my days on the road as a museum, you know, or on the road uh, as a musician, and waking up in, in strange towns a, a little hungover and looking out the window just to see what was out there. I can't tell you how I would have reacted if, <laughs> if the street was full of mummies. Right now. <laughs> Where am I now? <laughs> Is that even mummies are tired of being indoors? You know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's yeah, yeah. the pandemic is over. <laughs> mummies can get out. <laughs> well, and the, and the question is, do they have their their vaccination passports? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Oh boy. Well, that wraps it up for uh, for the X Files and for today's edition of Armchair Politics. But of course, not before I say thanks to. Uh, my uh, gracious participants, uh, our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. Thanks, guys. Always good to Thank see you. you. It's a great conversation. And it's uh, it's always fun when we have uh, Jan Worth Nelson join the roundtable. Thank you. My Jan. pleasure too. I Thank hope we can meet a person one of these times. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I I also uh, since we have about a minute, um, a little over a minute left. Um, I, I, I just want to say for anybody who might be concerned because they've tried to find something on the website's archive, the archive is down. It's been down for a week or two. We're, we're changing servers, and I'm not sure how long before it's back up and, and repopulated with missed shows. We're still carrying the show. I mean, it still repeats all day online, so if you missed part of today's show and you wanted to hear it, you can listen later in the day. But, um, and, of course, it uh, we broadcast live on 92.1 FM, and that replays at 9 p.m. But um, just so people know, the... the um, we're aware of the problem <laughs> if you're trying to get to the archive it, uh, it 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 is being changed and hopefully upgraded a little bit in the process so yeah. so thanks uh thanks everybody um tomorrow is going to be kind of interesting uh, during the 10 o'clock hour we're going to start uh, observing um, holocaust remembrance day with uh the author, um, Emmanuel Rosen, has a very interesting book about his uh, grandparents who left Germany right before the Holocaust and moved to Israel, where he was born and raised. In any event, um, that wraps it up for today's edition of Armchair Politics. Thanks again to our uh, roundtable participants and to everybody who tuned in. That's Smokin' George Winters tickling the ivories, letting me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But I will be back tomorrow at 9 a.m. with another edition of the Tom Sumner Program, and I hope that you will be too. In the meantime, good night, everybody.
program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.